0: Thank you, everybody, for joining the 2024 uh, webinar. We're going to go through some stocks, uh, the economic uh, back back look for um, a backdrop for the U.S., some international. And we're going to review what we did last uh, last quarter in October. Uh, all right. So first and foremost, it's always nice just to have a little bit of disclosure, right? This is not investment advice, please pretty please go get a financial advisor do your own research uh this is these these are my opinions i i, I kind of give you what i think and my take but don't make investment advice based on me do your own research and seek a uh, professional investment advisor you can read the full disclosure at my website so just i always like to start with a little bit of background some people we have a lot of new people in the cash flow uh club and a lot of new people in the uh in this webinar um i've been Working in finance for 20 years. Uh, currently, I run uh, I run companies for private equity companies. I'm the CFO for their portfolio companies, and I help them. Uh, for, for really different model than what we do here. Uh, we, we use a tremendous amount of leverage in in, le- in in private equity to to really execute on that market multiple arbitrage. That's what I talk about with the trifecta. One of the three is the market multiple arbitrage that expansion of market multiple that is essentially entirely all the private equity model. They use a tremendous amount of debt, so They don't have to put up much equity. They wait for that expansion of multiple. And that's what I try to help get them to, to accomplish. Um, been a part of an IPO process, took a company public in 2015. That's been a long time ago. Um, wild process, um, Credit Suisse was the underwriter. Morgan Stanley was joint book runner and Goldman Sachs was kind of in there with their high net worth clients. It was a lot of fun, but I learned a tremendous amount of kind of the just the, the chaos that goes on with analyst forecasting stocks. And I always thought that it was kind of a racket, uh, kind of the, the 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 model that they're willing to put forward to investors. Uh, so starting this this club, I wanted to show everybody exactly how I arrived at the number and you can judge- if you think the growth is too high, too low, you can you can make those changes for yourself. But at least it's it's transparent how it arrived. So that's kind of me. Uh, let's dive into the into the presentation and figure out where are we. So, on are we on target for inflation? Uh, nice from Maine, love it. Um, are we on target for inflation or not? It looks like we are. Um, and when when I I took this clip here from. Uh, one of the governors, Chris Waller, uh, he's got a couple comments in his speech in January 16th. He said, I believe policy uh, is set properly. It is restrictive and should continue to put downward pressure on demand to allow us to continue to see moderate inflation readings. So as I said, I believe we're on the right track to achieve 2% inflation. And definitely this chart looks like that. And I've covered in the past how I think the Fed does... Um, or at least the reporting boards do tend to manipulate the 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 metrics, the the benchmarks they use. They they use a um, kind of adjusted rent index. Uh, they love to exclude oil and food, which everybody has to use. So it, it, I think they do manipulate it a little bit. But it does seem like inflation is coming down, whether it's, whether it's three point three or three point five. It's moving them in the general direction. And then he continued. He said, uh, as of today the data has come even be- come in even better. Real gross domestic product is expected to have grown between 1% and 2% in the fourth quarter. Unemployment is still below 4%. 4% is what they consider full employment. Uh, and core uh, personal consumption expenditure inflation has been running close to 2% for the last six months. As a macroeconomist, this is almost as good as it gets. So, the the Fed is seeing tremendously positive data, and they've said that they're going to be data dependent. So if if the economy is is performing or the the inflation's coming down, would they cut rates? Um, and, and I've been surprised at how how well the economy has handled the current interest rate environment. And in fact, when you look at unemployment, unemployment is still very very low uh 3.7% at the rate now the fed's mandate is two things stable pricing and full employment um th- we are still at full employment so i would not expect the fed to really start cutting rates if the economy is doing really well and unemployment is still at full employment there's no reason to lower rates and to boost the economy um so we, we, i think everybody that i've read has been watching this number in particular and they're waiting for it to they're waiting for it to go up and when there's a spike, then Fed the the Fed will begin cutting rates. In January, this number bottomed at three point four percent of unemployment. It's since in the last twelve months moved up to three point seven. Does that mean it's going to keep going? I don't know. Is it going to flatline here? Who knows? We are seeing more unemployment and out or layoff notices for some of the big corporations this quarter. I think people are using these tougher economic times to kind of bundle up all the changes they would like to to make. Kind of push it out the door and say, "Hey, we're we're adjusting with everybody else." So we might see that number tick up, and if it does, then I would expect the Fed to cut rates. But if it remains full employment and the economy is doing well, why would they cut? Um, so, an interesting uh, thing to, to to consider when we look at what the market is expecting, and the reason we had a tremendous rally in in December is the the market as a whole assumes rate cuts are coming. And I think this is where you get to that divergence of, of thinking. We need rate, we need the economy to come down and unemployment to spike for the Fed to cut rates. So, so it's like almost good news is bad news or bad news is good news. If if the economy starts to come down and, and, and retard or, or go into recession, the market's happy because they think they're going to cut rates and money's become cheap again. That's what they're anticipating. So any any bad economic news that comes out, the market seems to react favorably to um, but this this is the forecast of when they think rates have come down. So sometime at the end of 2024, they think they're going to be from five and a half to four and a half percent. And by the end of 2025, they'll be at three and a half percent. But notice it's not zero. Um, and that's still higher than it was in 2018. Uh, that's still going to be very restrictive to highly levered investments. You're still going to have uh, banks who made loans uh, that are on their books at zero percent. They're still going to be upside down. So th- the regime of of quite literally negative interest rates is over. Um, the bond bull market that's gone on for the last uh, for the last thirty years, I think, is over. And the and and money has a cost now. Uh, you can see it bottomed here this is the 30-year treasury. There's the yield on the 30-year treasury bottomed at 0.69%. So had you bought a 30-year treasury, you'd be making 0.7% interest annually for 30 years on that money. Uh, fast forward, even two years, we're now at 4.2% um, dramatically outside of the the trend line. I think that's what, um, uh, that 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 cost of money, that change is having uh, causing assets to have to reprice, the longer this stays up here, um, you know, the the more, more difficult it is for businesses to maintain valuations that are dependent on cheap money, uh, such as the real estate market, like the commercial real estate market is having major issues, and everyone's hoping that rates come down and that will bring bring down the losses, the longer this stays up there, the harder it is for companies to justify um, the valuations that they have on the books for those loans. Um, and the the more likely it is that one of their bonds will mature. They'll have to go to market to raise new capital. The market will force them to, mark to market their own assets and there will be a loss. That's where you get this unrealized loss that's sitting on the bank's balance sheets that everyone talks about becoming a realized loss when they're they're forced to go raise capital and 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 the the capital providers will not provide them money unless they adjust their their books so then let's take a look at the two-year treasury versus the fed funds rate um the two years obviously up but most recently the two year has been coming down here and and it's interesting that this little drop it generally precedes the pulling down of the fed funds rate you can see here the blue line started coming down first and then the uh, the red line. Same thing over here. We've got the blue line dropping slightly before uh, the red. Same thing over here. So it's, the, the pattern has typically been there's a spike in unemployment. The, the market sees the movement in un- unemployment faster than the Fed can react with their meeting timing. Yields come down as as people think that we're coming into a recession and then the Fed follows. so the the thinking here at least when when I when I watch the double line presentation, uh, which you guys should all go and and, and watch um, uh, Jeff uh, Gunlatch is a, is a brilliant bond trader and investor. Uh, they're expecting unemployment to spike here in the next uh, quarter or so. So then let's just talk a little bit about where we are, kind of the state of the state of the U.S., uh, kind of the underlying backdrop of what we're, um, you know, the market landscape in which we're investing in. And I always think this is a really interesting chart. You've got this is the debt; it's leverage, so it's it's, but it's relative to our GDP. So it's total U.S. debt divided by the GDP. You get a ratio. In 1980, that ratio was 31 percent; very under levered. 30 percent of the econ- economy was levered. Over the last 40 years, the U.S. Uh, Congress, various presidents, everybody has has continued to increased spending, which is stimulative to the economy, uh, financed by lower and lower interest rates over this period of time, all the way to now we sit at 120% of GDP. Uh, we have we have leverage of 120% GDP. So we're approaching three, tr- $30 trillion of debt. GDP, most recent measure I could find is $23 trillion. Now, how high could this go? Who knows, right? It, 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 it's only a problem when it becomes a problem some scale japan sitting at 214% they're not the the, the shiny example of a, an economy but they're still there it's 214% uk is at 100 germany is at 60 so it gives you kind of some scale uh what the largest economy in the world is sitting at 120% of debt i think the real point here is part of the growth we experienced in the economy was the borrowing and deficit spending that drove this up, fueled by cheaper interest rates. The question is, if interest rates stay up, what what happens to the economy, and can this be repeated? So Let's take a look at interest expense for the U.S. government. Um, Again, quoting here some of the double-line research, which I think is nice, um, this is a chart of the um, interest expense as a percentage of total tax revenue taken in by the U.S. government. Right, this, this little bump right here, we're sitting at 14% of all tax revenue right now will go to pay interest expense on the debt, which is an astronomical amount, in my opinion. It peaked in the 80s at 18%, and it's forecast to go north to 20%. If I look at this chart here, it might be a little tough to see. This is just change year over year by sector. So, Social security spending is up, health insurance, health spending is flat. Uh, income and security is down 18%. National defense is up 11 Medicare is up 12 uh, Debt Net interest up almost 50% year over year. Veterans are up 16%. Education is down 21%. And all others up 60%. So all of these categories are higher with the exception of this income, security, and education. I'm sorry to see them cutting education uh, with, with all the other things going on. Y- you think they'd invest in that. But um, it does look like spending is continuing. Interest rates are higher. It makes it makes me just question how much can we really fuel the economy going forward based on this deficit spending. Um, I'll also note that I, I think I'm I, I've been critical of Janet Yellen as a, as the um, Treasury Secretary because while she was there, she did not issue any kind of long bond for the U.S. government. Um, if, when 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 the thirty-year Treasury is sitting at zero point seven percent. She should have like every other American refinancing their home to get to lock in thirty years of low interest rates the u s government did nothing of that. We should have issued a fifty year bond at at one percent interest or a hundred year bond at one percent interest to kind of save us some of this, but we did not. All of our debt is very short term, and as a result, you're saying in rapidly increasing interest rate expense as the interest um rate stays high so uh what are we doing about this um the the deficit spending continues to grow this is just uh revenue minus expenses we spend more than we um than we take in as the federal government it was 1.7 trillion was the overexpense in 2023 uh typically you will see a, an economy um at, in good times buy down debt actually have a negative so a surplus of a savings and buy down debt we, the good times of 2015, twenty eighteen in here, we did not do that. We continued to deficit spend. I think that's kind of a, a fault. We should have been buying down some of the debt to kind of prepare for a weaker time. Um, but that's that's growing. And I think what what's not what's not really taken into account is the economy our economy is growing in real terms. the The fedish is is is, is uh, has restrictive monetary policy in place. They are tightening with higher rates. And they're pulling out money from the system, uh, kind of reverse printing, if you will. They take it, and they tear it up, they destroy the money. It, it removes money supply, M2 money supply from the economy. This is stimulative. So here, the federal government is actually in conflict with the monetary policy. The federal government's spending money to fuel the economy. The Fed is taking money away to, to kind of cool the economy. And you've got kind of this, this battle It's interesting, we spent $1.7 trillion of extra cash. That's roughly 7% of our entire GDP was spent by the government last year to boost growth. And what did growth look like? Well, we grew growth, the GDP of the United States grew 3.1% in real terms, a very healthy number. Uh, That is a really, really solid number. My only caveat here is if, if you had to spend... $1.7 $1.7 of extra money to, to get 3.1% real growth, that doesn't seem sustainable to me. Uh, that was 7% of our entire GDP was spent for 3% of economic growth. Uh, so I guess my long-winded point here is I just want to be cautious about how long we can continue to deficit spend to fuel the economy. And if that deficit is is just even with budget, I think the economy would come down because it would miss that spending. So then where are we year to date? What are we doing 2024? Uh, So far, the trend line here is we are on pace. If I were to extend this out, we're on pace for 2.5 trillion in deficit spending. Uh, Again, 1.7 last year. So a continued uh, movement that. Is about 10% of the gross domestic product of the United States. So we go from 7% spending to 10% spending in one year. That's that's a big number. Um and and so I, I think in the end, well, I got another slide. We'll see, we'll see. So just remember that this this deficit spending is stimulative. And if if we have you know, a Congress that decides to balance the budget and spend what we take in, that's that's going to be extra restrictive to the economy. So what's the forecast? The gray box here, this is the CBOE, you know, the C- Congress's budgetary office saying this is what we think interest expense is going to be as a percentage of revenue. They are projecting 20% of uh, revenue Will go to interest expense by twenty thirty two. Uh, this line here, the sharp increase is is kind of dramatically um, outperforming, if you will that that number. So we'll we'll see what this looks like. Um, I, I'm not sure this is to say, this is sustainable. I have no idea when it might be fixed, but I think there is some kind of fix that's going to have to happen, and what that cost, I'm not sure. But just keep in mind, it's kind of good macro data of, of of how we grew the last thirty years. Uh, you know, deficit spending, lower interest rates. <clears throat> interest rates come up now. Can we continue that? Probably not. We need to find investments that can still have pricing power, that can still operate, gain market share in a landscape that does not have that stimulative federal funding that comes out uh, with with renewed and continued deficit spending. So, what's one of the biggest sectors? That uh, that's been affected recently. It's in the headline news. I hinted at earlier the commercial real estate problem. So what's going on? Right, these are these real estate in general is a massive leveraged bet. Um, U.S. Uh, retail people put very little down on home; they finance it. The whole thing, same thing with the commercial market. Uh, so the breakdown in in the total market value of commercial real estate. At least this estimate was about 5.8 trillion dollars of outstanding CRE debt is out there. We're seeing some delinquencies move up sharply since since the the rate rise, right? We're now at about 17 about 17 billion dollars of uh, losses or delinquencies, rather, for the non odor occupied properties um, as that as that trends up that's going to be that's going to be a bit of a problem. So so how big then is if the commercial real estate market is is 5.8 trillion these these numbers are just so big it's hard to understand. It's it's actual impact to the economy. So I tried to scale it for us a little bit. So I said okay, what what how big was the great financial crisis? Like that's the biggest thing that I think in anyone's memory. How big was it? Well that that the great financial crisis, you know, this is a Google search resulted in 2 trillion dollars of a loss. Okay, well, we got we've got a uh, we got a commercial real estate market here that's 5.8 trillion in total. So if you wrote down half the business, it was if his that would be equal to roughly the Great Financial Crisis in size. So then let's here's an outlook. Then uh, the outlook for the sector is now so bleak that Cantor Fitzgerald's chairman and billionaire chairman and, uh, and CEO Howard Ludwig is predicting between $700 billion and $1 trillion of, of default over the next two years unless interest rates fall quickly. Uh, and he sees that as unlikely. Uh, so as so he continues, I, th- I think we're going to have a very, very ugly market in owning real estate over the next 18 months or two years. Um, this is going to be a generational change in real estate to the point there's an estimated $1.2 of commercial real estate debt maturing. In 2025, according to the Mortgage Bankers Association, that's 25% of the debt is in the hands of struggling offices and retail spaces. With interest rates rising more than 5% point in the past two years, that's a recipe for default. Uh, so so back to this debate over how long interest rates stay where they are. The longer they stay here, the more likely something like this happens so it's kind of like bad news is good news if if this happens interest rates come down it prevents the further decaying of of these upside down properties because they're able to refinance themselves at hopefully a rate that cash flows so i think this is this is a problem uh it it's its scale is is really large here's another quote um just looking at the commercial real estate, it's about 1.2 trillion dollars of the U.S. commercial real estate debt was potentially troubled, quote unquote. Uh, so that's 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 half the size of the Great Financial Crisis. Uh, and Cantor Fitzgerald, for those who don't know, is 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 a is a massive brokerage company that uh, specializes in commercial real estate. Is this going to happen? No idea, right? It, 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 nobody can know what the future is, and it, this is a kind of multifaceted uh, system where actors can make changes to affect this so if we cut interest rates uh this goes away uh, the thinking there is is perhaps that reignites inflation so it's kind of a balance between the two uh, and we' will we'll see we'll see what happens um, I wanted to recycle this uh this quote from the last last meeting I I still think it's true it's you know we're going to have a debt crisis in this country how fast um, it transpires I think it's going to take it's going to be a function of the supply and demand issue so I'm watching it very closely this is Ray Dalio right he runs one of the biggest hedge funds in the world um Bridgewater uh he's all over the internet and I think he's I think he's right here I think nobody knows when this is going to happen but we have to do something at some point um so in this in this landscape we then kind of diverge into what what stocks might be of interest how do we how do we navigate this this macroeconomic environment? So, so where are we? Um, here's a clip from uh, Fidelity uh, as they look at the business cycle and they're trying to identify where are we in the in this this great cycle of ours. Um, historically, at least the last twenty years, uh, the Fed has has mainly printed money or engage in quantitative easing to lower the recession here, this part. If you go back, and I'll just detour here quickly. If you go back in time before the Fed started doing this, and you look at the gross domestic product movement, where was that chart? Here. You can see before they started pretty money, the swings up and down were much more uh, volatile. This was the... Economic. This is the business cycle people would talk about. You know, things would heat up. Uh, you know, things would get speculative. It crashed. The market would fall, and you have much wider swings. But conversely, when it comes down, you upsize much bigger. And a lot of a lot of young people took advantage of this coming out of school. You know, the market crashes. You're able to get into to, to stocks cheaply. You're able to buy homes cheaply, and that rips higher. And the, the 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 spread there was much much higher. But of course, nobody likes that when it crashes. So the Fed started with greenspan really started manipulating how how much influence they have over the over the economy and they've done largely a very good job look at the dispersion here now economic growth is much tighter it does not we we don't allow it to run high and conversely if there's any kind of blip in the downside we cut off the downside which is nice but that doesn't give an opportunity for people to buy really discounted really deeply discounted real estate stocks bonds all that stuff at them it really cuts out a lot of the volatility um, as the Fed steps in and, and saves us kind of every time from the um from from the real downside. So I only say that because if we're looking at this this like downside here, I think right now the stock market is kind of looking through this. They're saying, hey, if it goes down, Fed cuts rate instantly, the, the market economy rebounds. So there's probably, you know, six months here of issues. So let's go ahead and just buy the stocks now. And that's what we experienced. In, uh, in 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 Q four, was everyone saying we're we're going to have one? We're just going to look right through it. And Fidelity is saying that we're kind of on the on the cusp of some kind of recession. I think the the trick here is how how much can they actually do? You know, they I, they can't cut rates to zero. We would have inflation again. So it's we'll see we'll see what they we'll we'll see how they transpire. I, no one's really sure. But I think we are on some sort of edge of something. So what happened last last year? What performed well? So what what performed well is, um, you know, equities did extremely well. As, as as people looked through the coming recession, or or in theory a recession could be coming, they said, well, if I, I hang on to it for you know six months, ride it through the Fed saves their day, then the Dow Jones, S and P five hundred, either the Nasdaq up forty percent, these things were all driven by. Well, some of it with AI bubble, but the, the next of it is just looking through and believing the Fed is going to save us that this bad news is good news idea. If the economy comes down, rates come down, life returns to, to normal. That's that's what the, the market is betting on. So I like this chart from Morgan Stanley. It gives you a real long-term view of what, what the stock market has done in here. And I highly recommend you take some time. I'll post this in the Cashflow Club. Uh, go back through or take a screen grab and look at it um, at your leisure. But it has some great information here. It tells you about market multiples. So it's it's showing up top. Here's the S&P 500 index level. Um, here's the ratio of price earnings ratio of 20, 25 times 15, 19, 21, and 19.5. And the earnings that um, that kind of equivalent earnings from nineteen from two thousand to twenty twenty three this sixty to two hundred and forty five is a six point three percent annual growth in earnings um, that has that has really underpinned the um, the S and P five hundred movement and these swings you see up down up down is kind of the combination of earnings growth and, and deceleration and then market multiple expansion and contraction so if you look at this period here, this first period in the in the two thousands, this was uh, kind of the multiple collapse from the peak here down. This drop of forty nine percent. That's because the market multiple on the S and P went from twenty five times to to sixteen times. So now almost a halving of the multiple. Earnings themselves didn't all that much. And then from here, this 100% return, this rip here was mainly pure earnings per share growth. Uh, the, the market multiple didn't move a lot at all. 15.9 times down here, 15.1 up here. So this is all just um, the dot-com, the, the Microsoftization of the, the office landscape where people continue to just use technology and grow earnings. That was 100% return. And then the collapse here, Right, That was market multiples went down, earnings went down. That was a great financial crisis. Both, both collapsed and you dropped 60%. From that bottom, that 400% rise, this is lots of stimulus, earnings per share growth plus market multiple expansion from a low of 10 to a high of 19. So you get a doubling. And I think a lot of what we perceive as the stock market, a lot of what we perceive as, as, as how to invest is, is framed by our recent memory of the stock market. And and uh, we, we forget that the market go, can go sideways for a long, long time. And when we think back of this great run from 08, even to present day, as this kind of continues, this, this rapid growth is a f- reflection of earnings growth, right? standard earnings growth, and a massive market multiple expansion from 10 to we're now at 20, so a doubling. So half of the outperformance of the S&P 500 over the last 10 years has been simply the multiple expanding from 10 to 20. So, so going forward, is it reasonable to ex- assume that the market multiple is going to expand from 20 to 40 and do it again? Uh, probably not. Uh, it, it's probably going to stay where it is or contract. That means that stock performance is going to be based primarily on earnings growth, not the market multiple expansion, albeit a few uh, stocks here or there that you might be able to pick off. So where are we then in terms of the distribution of market multiples? What does it look like? I show this chart every um at every um uh, cash flow webinar. This is the 30 year standard deviation of the 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 earnings multiple and you've got kind of like a a box grid up here that shows various different um valuation metrics PE CAPE, dividend yield price to book all of these at the latest measure are above their 30-year average so we are saying hey we're we're at the you know kind of one standard deviation away from the mean um we we, we tend not to hang around the two-year the two standard deviation too much uh this this year here is about four years from 97 to 99 a very uh, very crazy time. I remember the time, and a lot of what I see in the AI space and the EV spaces is, is reminiscent of that. Just go buy almost anything, and it, it all seems to go up. Um, we're still sitting about twenty times. I think that's I think that's a high. This is driven mostly by the top seven, the top seven stocks in the stock market. Most of this, right, is 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 being born by um, the Nvidias of the world, the Amazons, the Apples, the Googles, the Facebooks. This this index is a market weight index. So the greater the market cap, the more money gets put into the market cap by the S&P 500. It is not an equal weighted index where it says, I have 500 stocks. I have 500 bucks. I'll sprinkle a dollar into all the stocks. That's not how this works. The S&P 500 is a market weighted index, meaning I have $500. Rank them as a percentage of market from biggest to smallest and match that weighting with their size. So apples, googles get the lion's share of the money. Those trade a higher multiple. That's why this multiple is higher. One thing to note, I can't get into it too much, but I think it's interesting just the international valuation. So while they, while the U S has continued to rip higher, the international stocks have not done well relative Uh, and the price earnings ratio, well, well, we're sitting at a one standard deviation above the 30 year average. These guys are two standard deviations below the average. So um, there might be some kind of value out there that you need to, you need to look at um, as, as you're kind of shifting around and looking around the world where to, where to put capital. Um, I think the U S is definitely a crowded space. It was just another way to slice the S and P 500. So I was talking about early er, weighted average versus um, versus equal weight, right? So this is just saying the weight of the top ten stocks in the S and P 500 is thirty percent. So, so ten stocks make up thirty percent of the value of the entire index. Obviously, they're going to be driven like that. Uh, the rest of the stocks that are not those those um, those ten their their performance is here. It, so this is this this blue line is the rest of the market. This top line is just the top ten stocks, sixty percent of the gains since twenty twenty three. Um, and so I think I think the the question is how how long can that can can that really run? That's that's going to be a a question. We've we've had this in the past. We've had the dot com. We've had the Nifty fifty. Right. Everyone says like the, the mantra back in the 1950s was nobody gets fired buying IBM that was that was true you you just every fund manager had to own it if you didn't own it and it outperformed you were fired if you if you owned it and it went down you you kept your job because well everybody is invested in it so we have the same thing here everyone is in the same same pool um and so you know what happens if if the pool is no longer performing as as it should I don't know how pools perform. That's not the best analogy, but but I hope you get my drift. Uh, so let us take a look at uh, just a different sector entirely, right? We're we're cash flow hungry. Let's let's take a look off the beaten path. Uh, anybody can take a look at Apple and tell you what you think it's the values. There's a billion people that are doing that. What is the Russell 2000 doing? Let's let's go down. But what, what are the smaller stocks doing? Uh, it's it's pretty interesting. This this chart just shows the the number of un not number of the percentage of the unprofitable companies in the Russell 2000 is sitting at 40%. That's astounding to me. Um, if if we rewind the rewind the clock a little bit and we say, okay, what was it in 2010? 2010, 2010, it was to call it, so 2000, 2000. It was roughly 25% of the index. Okay, well, what was interest rates? How much was 30 year bond at that point? Well, that was 6% interest. If, if interest rates are 6%, right? because these companies have to fund their losses somewhere, they fund it through equity capital or they fund it through debt. Uh, you can only print stock for so long. You can only borrow for so much. But as interest rates fell, companies were able to refinance their debt, free up, unlock more cash flow. That cash flow was used to fund losses and they continued moving on. Here in 2000, uh, 2006%, Fast forward ten years, uh, the long bond was four percent interest, and we moved from basically twenty-five percent to thirty percent. Fast forward to the to the peak, the absolute peak of um, uh, the losses, fifty percent over half of the of the of Russell, was operating a loss. That was a low point of the thirty year at 007 percent, and now this has come down. As interest rates have gone up, we're sitting at 4.2% is the current rate, and you have 41%. So this, what I'm trying to say here, and I'm long-witted to apologize, uh, is just that the interest rates affect how long uh, unprofitable businesses can remain uh, solvent. And if, if 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 rates stay here, then at 4.2%, this this percentage here should fall and you should see about another 10% of the Russell 200 enter some kind of restructuring phase, go bankrupt, because at 4.2% where the, where the 30 years is currently, they should be sitting at about uh, 30% of the, um, of the Russell should be, uh, should be unprofitable, not 41%. So that, that means that we have to be very careful when we're looking at companies that are small, or any company, right? but, but just this particular sector. Uh, there's a lot of garbage in there and you have to sift through a lot to find anything that's decent i saw this on the internet so i thought i'd steal it uh nvidia laid on top of cisco uh in the 1990s so this is um you know the first the first boom here was just the semiconductor uh the, the gaming boom the the bitcoin craze i have to have this is the only processor i have it's going to the moon and then Oh, Bitcoin crashes. Oh my god, it's it's down uh 50%. And then hey, here's a new here's a new theme, AI. Oh, that's clearly going to go to the moon and then boom, it just absolutely blows up. The the stock is even higher than this now. This is the, an old chart. This is only $471. But but it, it, it's going to come down. It's just a question of of when, and I just would hate to hate to own it when it falls cuz everybody rushing to the door, you are not going to be the first out of the gate. None of us are sitting in front of our terminal all the time. Hopefully not if you're a value investor, right? Um, none of us have the connections to Wall Street to be able to front run people or to get the, the, the smell, of the the panic happening. Uh, a lot of the retail people get a uh, you know, hole in the back because we have nine to five jobs. We don't get the reports until next week or you know, kind of get around to it. And by then the stock is t- created. So I'd be very careful with... Um, with speculative stocks like this. I thought it was brilliant that uh, you know Tesla had their earnings announcement uh the other day and people uh they missed they missed growth. And Musk's comment to that was that they are quote between growth waves, which I thought was the most hilarious way to say that the stock was down uh or the, the earnings are down. And we're not down, we're we're between growth cycles or growth waves, which uh, please, that's if I could make a bumper sticker to that, that's fantastic. Uh, the man is uh, very talented, uh, and he says what he, what's on his mind It's good. Good for him, I guess. Uh, so, so where's all this money going? So, what are, what are people doing with their cash? Well, they're sitting in 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 cash. Uh, $6 trillion are in money market funds uh, that continues to grow as as interest rates uh, stay up there. You're getting paid to wait. I I got a ping. The Apple credit card right now is paying 4.2%, something like that, um, for having an Apple credit card. Uh, That's amazing. And they are, Apple, is reacting to interest rates faster than traditional banks. A lot of the biggest problem here is banks are trying to, to create earnings, they're the banks earning is the spread and interest between what what they can borrow and what they have to pay out for they can borrow now now at a higher rate or they're getting money on a higher rate uh 4.2 percent and they're paying us for our savings accounts next to nothing still that's how banks earnings are growing is they're just holding our consumer back Apple and others whose business is not banking are doing customers a service by pegging their returns direct much more directly to money market funds. And they're they're helping customers out. I really like that. And it's it's driving money outside of banks. It could be a problem for just the, the capital ratios of the banking sector, specifically the, the small regional banks who did a lot of the commercial real estate underwriting. Uh they're gonna have a, a major problem. So this cash. Um, sitting here, it's got to find a home. At some point, it'll either continue to stay there. Um, I think it might go into the bond market once the bond market sort of solidifies it at what rates might be. Um, you know, Does it go into the stock market? Uh, I'm, I'm not sure. Uh, just sprinkling an interesting chart in that I saw, uh, this is the U.S. population growth. I thought this was really interesting. Uh, just the year-over-year year change uh, and how it's near zero. I would not have I would not have guessed that. Uh, but the the natural birth rate of the United States is, is dropping a lot. I think that's part of the reason we're seeing the U.S. government allow a lot of illegal immigration to come in, as they need to expand the labor force to continue to grow the economy. If you if you break out the GDP function, the the equation that that equates to GDP. Uh, labor is a big piece of labor consumption net exports and investments are the the four components the labor piece uh for us does two things uh it combats this which is deflationary if population declines it's deflationary everything comes down that's a huge problem when debt is continuing to grow up you can't have you can't have the economy declining and debt growing that's the fastest way to to bankruptcy so to combat the low birth rate this is just me speculating i think they're just saying hey we need labor force, uh, so you're getting a lot of working age males coming into the United States, um, and and that for them is going to prop up the labor market, expand GDP, uh, and to take off pressure from wages because you have a greater supply of working age people. Um. So, I, so I th- I think that's why we're seeing this this issue. Uh, happen at the borders people um as as politicians look at this data and figure how do we continue to grow the economy that's just one way to grow it good good or bad i'm not passing judgment i'm just saying technically that's that's how you can grow it um let's take a look at uh the mortgage uh the mortgage market before we get into kind of some specific stocks um twenty three year low home sales as mortgage rates touch off uh new recent highs, so uh as I said at the outset, real estate is a leveraged bet and 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 every most everybody uh buys a home with leverage, and the home price the price at which you pay for the house is established by how much you can afford on a monthly payment that monthly payment is determined by the interest expense or interest rate on that on that mortgage so no surprise. Mortgage rates go up only slightly. This is a four percent increase, right? That's not that big—a four percent move—and it absolutely just devastates demand for housing. Uh, so we'll we'll see. The question here in housing is: Does it stay up here? Are we staying elevated for a period of time like this? If we stay elevated um, up here, then then demand for housing will continue to be at an all time low. If 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 they cut rates because the economy comes down then it gets cheaper, but then if people don't have jobs, they don't buy houses. So, so I think this one is still, um, it can go lots of different ways, but it's it's a very interesting uh, a couple a couple of different changes to the real estate market. All right, so as I was saying earlier, um, we've got, you know, with, with all of the things going on, the, the, I think the, the world is starting to reprice growth. And I've got a couple of charts here just quickly, some stocks that I thought were interesting that they're reacting to as, as they can't, can't grow as fast as expectation. Tesla has been a big darling of this for a long time. Uh, people debate, is it, a, is it a car company? Is it a technology company? Uh, I think everybody has their opinion on that. But at the end of the day, they actually have to manufacture the car. They can't just put them in cyberspace, at least not yet. So as a result, you have labor, you have people, you have manufacturing, you have costs. And as they underperform, uh, the market multiple that the trade at is hurting their they're hurting their stock price a lot. And so that's just the market reacting to uh, weaker than expected growth. Uh JD.com, the Chinese market is is absolutely been destroyed. It continues to be destroyed. That's one of the reasons pejing um the, the Beijing has uh, banned short selling. I mean, nothing says free market economy like banning people from selling the investment. So that's that's a great sign for uh, for the Chinese stock market. Um, so, you know, be, be very careful with this. I, I, I get it. You look at the numbers as, as a value investor. I do it the same Baba, uh, David and I were just talking about the other day. I think the market cap is the EV of, of Baba's $5 billion. They have more cash than, than that on their balance sheet. Like it's, it's crazy cheap, but the problem is twofold. One, the reason you do that number is if the company goes bankrupt, what do you get to keep? the chinese government would never let you take the money out of out of out of the, out of china so i think that's an issue and then two the financials you're staring at how do you know they're right if the auditors are not in there to um to, to really validate what you're looking at we're all trusting this because we're used to the sec overseeing all the numbers that are on the reporting but the the chinese are not allowing uh the auditors to audit those numbers to the extent that that we would here in the states um and I, I don't, I'm not sure that the data you're looking at is accurate. Uh, so for me, I, I think that's a no for the whole, for the whole region. I'd be very careful about that. Um, there is a, um, I think his name is Kyle Bass. He's a hedge fund manager in Texas. He tracks a lot of what the Chinese do. He's been really outspoken about that. And and he says, and I'm paraphrasing here, that that the Chinese have, have have stopped delivering a lot of the economic data that they used to because the data was negative. They have then moved that department inside the Chinese wall. And so now the government actually releases what the economic data is. Um, and and so in his opinion, it's largely uh, tainted and, and can't really be trusted. So I, I would be very cautious about, about just assuming those numbers are right. Um, uh, Estee Lauder. A lot, a lot of their, they have a lot of the stocks in, um, a lot of their sales come from the travel sector and a lot from the Chinese market that was down. Stocks absolutely been hammered down almost 50% um, since since it's high. I actually like this company. I owned it a period of time when it was running up and I thought it was over and sold it, but it has a global footprint a very sticky product. I think the more people engage in in conversations like this and webcasting, makeup usage is going to go up. So I I, I do like the company. The question is, what is the right multiple for this to to, to get back into into this company? But the point here is just the market repricing growth as people miss, the downside to missing is really high because the market multiple is high. If if you're sitting at a 20 times earnings multiple and you miss earnings, the stocks going to go down twice as much had the stock been at a 10 times earning. Advanced Auto Parts, um, they recently changed CFOs, CEOs, and put in a new chief uh, accounting officer because of some uh, some accounting problems uh, and and earnings problems. So that stock has absolutely been crushed in a sector that is growing. <clears throat> I think that the used car market will continue to be a strong market. These companies, along with um, O'Reilly's, and uh, I'm blanking on the others that, at the time, but there's several of them. They all supply used parts into refurbishing cars and up even if you're going to go to EV fleet, I still think you're going to be wanting to change parts. You're just changing EV parts. Uh, so I, 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 re- I really do like this sector. I, by the way, I just saw a bill that came to light in California uh, you guys aren't in California, but for those that are, uh, they want to, uh, by 2028, have an electronic switch in all cars in California that cap speed at 80 miles an hour. So uh, for all new car sales. Uh, so no matter if you were buying your Ferrari, I don't care, it's capped at 80 miles an hour. Um, that type of legislation might actually make keeping old cars... Um, Around a lot longer, much more, much more useful. And these guys actually had a growth in revenue last quarter despite all the internal muckery. Um, so I think that's interesting. Peloton just kind of reminding people uh, that euphoria can be dangerous. Uh, these guys squandered cash like crazy um, and, and just really destroyed what was a very, very brilliant business model. With crappy leadership, um, Smile Direct Club, uh, same kind of thing. Just, just absolute euphoric. Very interesting idea uh, to help people fix their um, their their teeth via mail. I kind of like that idea, but the the valuation was nuts when it went out. So, so this is back to my thing about IPOing and, and bankers when when they when they are doing a roadshow, there is just so much money that they can't help themselves, but but agree with management on rosy projections and, and the best case scenario because they all get paid a tremendous amount of money for a successful IPO. And all they need to do is just have it last a good six months after the IPO sale to make a killing. All this here, you think any of those guys had any of this stock? No, it was all gone. So when 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 you when you when you see a presentation by a company, the investor relations department, when you see a, a presentation by a big bank that is an underwriter. Those guys want the business for the companies. they 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 very rarely will issue sell ratings from their analysts. They would rather drop coverage from a stock entirely than issue a sell rating because at some point, that company's going to want to raise capital. And if Morgan Stanley's analyst is always having a sell rating on it, they're not going to pick Morgan Stanley as book runner. That's just the way it is. So, you know, you do your own research. Come up with your own opinions. I think you're you guys are smart enough um to kind of, you know, you're gonna win some, you're gonna lose some, but at least they're your decisions, right? I mean. So I right, let's let's recap a little bit of what we did um, how we did last quarter when we looked in October. So what did we what did we recommend? A United Health group. Uh we like the healthcare sector. We picked that one. That one's at a pretty steep multiple. This is as of October 6th versus Jans 26th. So it's down. 3.8 percent but still very very healthy company long term it's great uh, RTX that's that's Raytheon Technologies right the, the combination of Raytheon Corporation and United Technologies an absolute powerhouse in satellites in uh in defense um, and a lot of synergies there we picked that company up at 70 bucks it's now 90 It's a 30 percent gain that was a great little call out last quarter Google we thought uh was was cheap. Picked up ten point six percent there. Target, Target got absolutely destroyed with some of the looting that was going on, um, and they had and they they missed they missed earnings and was absolutely punished. We picked that stock up and made thirty seven percent growth in a quarter on Target, which like people fall asleep when you say Target. So uh, that's that's really really interesting. Great call by by the group and Applied Materials nineteen percent up since we called it last time. CVS uh, has not done as well as we had hoped. It's up six percent. Uh, I think a lot of the the thievery that's going on in in various states uh, is really really hammering their retail market. Um, but but long term, they are moving into the healthcare business, so they should eventually get a higher market multiple. That's the theory, and and uh, be more like United Health um, Group. But we did we did really well, and to and to kind of frame this, so as a whole, combining all those picks that we we said, assuming equal weighting, you we got sixteen point seven percent in a quarter for the growth there. The S and P five hundred did thirteen point nine for the quarter, and the Nasdaq did sixteen point five. So we beat S and P five hundred and and the Q and the triple Q. Um, and so I want to leave leave you guys with before we get into the actual stock picks for um, for this quarter um i want to leave you with a couple parting words here um mark twain this is a favorite quote that um howard marks talks about a lot who runs oak tree if you guys aren't following and reading his newsletters or listen to his podcast there's a podcast for oak, oak tree i highly highly recommend you listen to it it's phenomenal advice by a man who's been investing for 50 years um uh so it says uh it ain't what you don't know that gets you in trouble it's what you know for sure that just ain't so. and that's Mark Twain. That is so true. All of this front stuff that we talked about at the economy is great stuff. I don't know what that means for tomorrow. So uh, you know, try and humble yourself. We're gonna win some, you're gonna lose some. Uh, but but remember that that betting on what you think for sure is the best way to to, to fail. Uh, And then I like this quote, uh, to make money in the stocks, you have to have the vision to see them, the courage to buy them, and the patience to hold them. That's George F. Baker. Um, He's from 1840 to 1931. At the time of his death, he was the third richest man in the United States behind um, Ford and Rockefeller. Uh, George Baker, uh, railroad and banking was uh, was his industry. So, um all right. Thanks for thanks. That's the main presentation here. We'll uh we'll dive in now to the um to the to the to the stocks to review in the cash flow club for next quarter.